You can grab your Bible and open up to the book of Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and we're continuing our study in the book of Romans. Our series is called Growing Deeper, and we are growing deeper in how we think right now theologically and how we think particularly about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we kind of begin this morning, I want to just mention that I think we can essentially divide humanity into two camps, or maybe let me phrase it like this. There are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who wash their dishes before they put them in the dishwasher, and those who do not. I don't know if you remember a number of years ago, there was a a commercial, it was a a Cascade commercial, and there was this little girl, she's probably like eight years old, and she's there and she's talking about how she watches her mom wash the dishes before she puts them in the dishwasher, and then when they come out, if they still got junk, she washes them again, and she asks this profound question, what does the dishwasher do? Now, I have it on good authority that doing this, washing your dishes before you put them in, increases the life expectancy of the dishwasher, but I have also come to believe that it decreases the life expectancy of the individual who has subjected themselves to the needless stress of pre-washing the dishes. In all seriousness, listen, there really are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who try to clean themselves up before God and those who rely upon God to clean them up. Those who try to establish their own righteousness before God through their own works, and those who trust in a righteousness that must be credited or given to them freely by God's grace. There is the religion of human achievement, and there is the religion of divine accomplishment. And in order for us to be saved and satisfied in Christ, we must ask and answer this profound question. Listen, if, if we, first of all, if we must wash ourselves, like many people think, if we must produce our own righteousness, then this is the question that, that it begs, well, then what does the gospel do? And this is the question, what does the gospel do that I want to answer for us this morning because it is imperative for our salvation and it is imperative in our evangelism. If we don't understand how the gospel works, what the gospel does, we will not be effective in how we communicate it and then how we see God use it to transform sinners into saints. Paul is addressing this question about the gospel, and he's doing so because the Jews had come to believe that they must establish a righteousness for themselves instead of understanding the righteousness of God in the gospel. And in ver- beginning in verse 10, let's read all the way through verse 13, excuse me, verse 1, chapter 10. Paul writes these words. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jewish people, ethnically speaking, is that they may be saved. This is his whole heart. He wants them to be saved. So listen to what he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the heart of the Apostle Paul. He reiterates what he spoke to earlier at the very beginning of chapter 9, that he so desperately wants to see his Jewish brothers and sisters come to the saving knowledge of God. And this, in fact, is the heart of the Apostle Paul towards all people. There is this passionate desire to see people saved. And this ought to be embodied in the church of Jesus Christ. This is why we exist, to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. And he begins here by reminding us of our very purpose, of what the gospel in itself is designed to do. It is designed to save people from their sins. And I want to look at this in three ways this morning. What does the gospel do? First, notice this, the gospel confronts our condition. This is how the gospel works. It first runs straight into us, and it confronts us with some stark realities about our our human condition, our sinful condition. And in 1 through 4, Paul looks specifically at the Jewish people, and he reminds us, in effect, of what he said all the way back at the beginning of chapter 9, that these were the people who were the most privileged of all. They had knowledge of God. They had the law of God. They had the promises of God. They had the covenants of God. And yet, they are not saved by God en masse. They missed Christ. But it's so important to see how Jewish people are actually a lesson for all of us. We're looking in context specifically at the Jews, but you have to see the Jewish people as being a kind of paradigm. Much like Adam was a paradigm, we can look at Adam and we can see him and we can see much of ourselves, so too the Jewish people serve as a kind of lesson book for us, for all of humanity. Let me, let me tell you how and tell you why. First of all, Remember that the Jews, they they were brought into the promised land of God. They were liberated from bondage in Egypt. They're brought into this land that's flowing with milk and honey. And at their apex in the land, they lived without oppression from outside enemies. They had abundance and they were flourishing just consider it for a moment. They were the people of God in the land of God with the presence of God. It was a snippet of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. 
And there they had the perfect political system. God ruled. He wrote their laws. He handed their laws to them. God himself dwelt in the midst of his people. You see, what what does this teach us? It teaches us that humanity, listen, even when they have the perfect situation, is a total disaster. When you look at Israel, you see all of the privileges they had. You see how near they were to God. You see the revelation they had from God. What you see is that they are sinners as bad or worse as any other people that have ever lived. What went wrong? How did this happen? The the simple answer that Paul is wanting us to identify this morning is this. Listen, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness was the problem. Self-righteousness, which which in effect is actually idolatry. It is turning away from trusting God, believing God, and turning to what is actually no gods at all, which can provide you no righteousness, which leave you stranded in striving to establish your own righteousness. They took God's law, and instead of letting it expose their sin and showing them how sinful they are so that they could cry out for a Savior, as Paul says, letting it be a tutor that takes them by the hand and leads them to Christ, they took it and they set it up as a a stool to stand on to declare and to show how awesome they were. Look how how holy I am. Look how special I am. Look how obedient I am. They looked at the law, and they said, I got this. No problem. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus, he talks about this kind of self-righteousness that really characterizes the Jewish people on whole. Remember that the Pharisee who walks down in the temple courts and he starts praying out loud and he looks and he sees a tax collector and and he starts praying out loud, I thank God that I'm not like this man. I'm so righteous. I'm so holy. I've been following the law of God. And then there's this tax collector. He's over there in the corner and he's beating his chest and he's declaring, woe is me, I am a sinner. And And then Jesus In telling this story, he says, which one of these two men went away justified? Righteous. It's the man, the man who was beating his chest, who recognized his own sinfulness, who recognized his own unworthiness and his own inability to establish his own righteousness. In the same chapter, chapter 18 of Luke, Jesus has this confrontation with a rich young ruler. Remember that? And you remember the statement that he makes to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember Jesus' words to him? Just just obey all the commands. What's his response? I have done all of these since my youth. Look, I have followed all the commands. And then Jesus puts his finger right on the heart of the issue. He tells him to go sell all of his possessions, give them away to the poor, come and follow me. And he shows him just in one single act that this man didn't worship God. He worshiped himself. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, talks about his his own experience as a faithful Jew. 
And, and he says, you know, I, I, if you're looking for, for a righteous Jew, look no further than me pre-Christ. I, I was just unbelievable. I was zealous for the things of God. And according to the law, he says, I was blameless. Listen, blameless in the sight of men, but not blameless in the sight of God. And, you know, I, I just, self-righteousness is, is such a subtle killer in, in so many of our lives. There's so many of us here who actually live under the, the, the burden of, of self-righteousness, and we don't even realize it. We, we, you know, we begin to operate as if we, we can gain God's approval, you know, that our joy is found in the religious things we do, in reading the Bible just consistently for the amount of days in a row that our Bible plan tells us we should, or showing up and, and looking the right way in front of other people. And then, and then listen, when, when we fail in certain ways, it destroys us, it discourages us, we spiral out of control. Why? Why is that? Why is that that so many of us struggle with joy, can't get a, a handle on sin in our lives? You know what the answer is? Self-righteousness. It crushes our joy. It gives us an inability to find victory over sin. We begin to determine our identity by the things we think we can do, by our ability to earn acceptance from God, and that destroys us. When the gospel confronts our condition, this self-righteousness, it confronts every single one of us. The, the Jews, their problem was self-righteousness, and, and that is how you miss out on salvation, by the way. You want to make sure you miss salvation, just be a self-righteous individual. And look what he says in verse 2 in describing them. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in according to knowledge. I mean, that is a terrifying verse when you think about it. You can have a genuine zeal for God and yet not be saved. Let me put it like this. Sincerity is not a substitute for substance. Sincerity is not a substitute for substance. And by the way, that, that is such a countercultural thing to say today, isn't it? Because the height of truth in our culture is sincerity, is it not? The height of truth in our culture is sincerity, it's authenticity. If, if you are sincere, you can't be doing anything wrong. If you sincerely feel like a boy, even though you have a girl's anatomy, you need to follow the way you feel, and nobody can question it. Because sincerity in our culture, in our day and age, determines reality, but when it comes to your eternal destiny, listen, that is not the case. You can be zealously convinced you love God, zealously convinced you have God, but be so far from it and from Him. Lord, Lord, right? We can be sincere, but we can be sincerely wrong. And believing something sincerely doesn't make it reality. In fact, believing the wrong thing sincerely, you know what it can make you? It can make you a fanatic. You know what Winston Churchill once said about a fanatic? He said, a fanatic is one who cannot change his mind and won't change the subject. John Stott says this, a fanatic is somebody who has zeal without knowledge, commitment without reflection, and enthusiasm without understanding. 
And that's the Jewish people. So many of them were fanatics about God. They were zealous for God. That's like so many Christians today, fanatics about God, zealous for God. And what drove the zeal here? Well, what Paul says drove this zeal was self-righteousness. And this, again, it applies to people who come to church today. They come and try to look the part and come and try to play the part in order to present themselves. And, and, and they wear themselves out. It's exhausting trying to earn the favor of both God and man. It's exhausting. Some of you know this so well. It's so tiring. And the key thing in your salvation, listen, it's not how sincerely you believe something. It's the substance of what you believe. Even a little bit of faith in the right thing is enough to save. Even the weakest of faith. And the substance that Paul is pointing us to throughout this entire section is Christ. Christ is the substance. And that is what they missed in the Scriptures. You can be zealous, listen, passionate and sincere and still be hell-bound. And look at what verse 3 says. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Let me put it like this. Religiosity is not a substitute for righteousness. Religiosity is simply sincerely held religious beliefs. That is not a substitute for true righteousness from God. And here we are told that the Jews, they refused to submit to God's righteousness. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. That doesn't mean they didn't know about it. It means they wouldn't accept it. So what is God's righteousness as we've looked at it throughout the book of Romans, it essentially boils down to this. It is God's gift of righteousness that Jesus earned in His perfect life. And the Jews are so busy trying to establish a righteousness of their own that they refuse to submit to God's righteousness. They won't reach out and take the free righteousness that is fully available to them. That's the staggering reality of this passage. It's like it's sitting right in front of their face, and they can grab it and enjoy it and receive it, and they turn their back to it, and they say, nope, I'm going to try things my way. If you are infatuated with your own self-righteousness, you'll never be able to submit to God's righteousness. You'll never be able to receive the gift that He offers to you. And by the way, this is, this is essentially most religions in the world. This is how they operate. You pick a religion and, and you can boil it down to this reality. They're given a list of do's and don'ts, and if you do them, you're in. If you don't, you're out. And according to the Scriptures, that's not salvation. It's man-made religion. Strongly believing something doesn't make it so. And then he points out in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let me say it like this. Trying is not a substitute for trusting. Trying is not a substitute for trusting. They were trying to fulfill the law, trying to establish the righteousness through obedience to the law, and instead they were supposed to be trusting in what the law itself was pointing them to and who the law was pointing them to. Christ 
is the end of the law. He is the, the telos. That's the word that is used here. In other words, He is the goal of the law. He is that to whom the entire law is pointing. Here is the one who can fulfill all righteousness. Here is the one to whom all of the rituals and patterns are pointing towards. Here is the pure and spotless lamb that must take your place. He is its goal and He is its fulfillment. But you see, in their self-righteousness, they, they stumble over Jesus as that rock of offense. They're so deeply offended. Why? The, the reason so many of us, of human beings, are offended when they're presented with this reality, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, it's because it means you have to declare that you are unrighteous. It means you must recognize you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God. That's why it's so offensive. It's so offensive because it means you have to acknowledge there's nothing I can do. I can't figure this out. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I can't do enough. And yet God holds out a righteousness that is outside of them and outside of us. And it's this that he expands upon in the rest of this section. He wants to show us not only that the gospel, listen, confronts our condition. He shows us secondly that the gospel corrects our confusion. And to prove that Christ is the end of the law, Paul now explains the contrast between a salvation through works and a salvation by faith. And to do that, he actually begins to quote from the Old Testament. As he does repeatedly, he wants to establish his thoughts and establish the truth by the sufficient and authoritative Word of God. So, he goes to two different places. He goes first to Leviticus 18.5, and then he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. Now, here's what's significant about this. He is using Moses in both of these cases, okay? And the reason he's doing so is because there's some confusion over this first passage in the Jewish mind. In Leviticus 18, where he speaks like this. It says, for Moses writes, look at verse 5, about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. That's what Leviticus 18.5 says. If you do the commandments, you will live. And so many Jews had, had grabbed a hold of this, and they had come to believe that they, in fact, could do the works of the law and therefore live. And so what he then wants to do is show how Moses actually helps us understand how to properly interpret this first verse, what he actually meant by this verse. And he does that in Deuteronomy 30. Now, the problem was that they were confused about Moses' words in Leviticus 18, but I want to say this. They rightly understood that if, huge emphasis on the if, if you perfectly obey the law, you will be declared righteous. Okay? They rightly understood that this was part of what the law was teaching. If you can perfectly obey the law, if you can never sin at any point, you shall live. You will be righteous. 
I mean, didn't Jesus reaffirm this? Again, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's simple. Obey the commandments. Love God. Love your… You know what Jesus was saying? If you can do it perfectly, you can have eternal life. But what's his point even in that parable to the rich young ruler? You can't do it. It's not possible. He already said this in Romans 2.13 when he was addressing the Jewish people. He says, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. He says, here you go, Jews, you have the law. Go ahead and do it. You don't got to get very far before you realize you can't, but you see, they didn't. That's that's a frightening thing here. They understood what he was saying, but they had come to believe they could actually do it. They didn't have a deficient doctrine of the law in one sense. They had a deficient doctrine of man, of sin, of salvation, and certainly of Christ. No man has perfectly kept the law save one, Jesus Christ. And keeping the law was never designed to be a means by which they or we can showcase our righteousness. Like some kind of paint-by-number picture to hang on the wall, you know, hey, look what I did. I did it all right. Colored inside the lines. And yet this is so common today. So many of us still do this. So many of us are are like the Galatians. We constantly keep veering off onto a a self-righteousness track. Those things that were good responses to the gospel, obedience, which is good and right, they become laws in our life that we think will get us the gospel, will, will earn us God's grace, will earn us our forgiveness, will assuage our guilty conscience. And we need to abandon that kind of self-righteous thinking. Those things can never… We can't undo our sin. We, we can't make ourselves feel better just by doing the right things. You want to know what it is that makes you feel better, Christian, that gives you joy, Christian? It's in knowing that you are a wretched sinner and that God still loves you because of what He's done in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. You don't have to, you don't have to live under the guilt of like, oh no, I sinned again. I got to make it up. You don't have to live like that. You're freed from that kind of bondage. You're freed from that kind of burden. Listen, if you sin, listen, repent of your sin. Grab hold of the grace of God. Stand back up and walk in the confidence of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel calls us to. And Paul now, he quotes in verse 6 and 7, he quotes Moses' farewell address in Deuteronomy 30. Verses 11 through 14, and let me, just, let me just read it to you just for some context. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 30. He says this, for this commandment, he's talking about the law here. He's talking about the word of God that's been delivered to the people of God. He says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. 
This is what Paul grabs a hold of in order to show us the righteousness that comes, listen, not by the works of the law, but by faith. And he shows us two characteristics about the gospel and righteousness that comes through faith that are so essential for us to grasp. The first one is this, that it is accessible because God provides it. It's accessible. This righteousness that comes through faith is accessible because it's God who is the one who provides it for us. I want you to think about this. In the original context, again, speaking of the law and speaking of obedience to it, by the way, obedience to the law was never to be uh, removed from or dissected from the idea of faith, okay? It always required faith in God to obey. In fact, obedience was the overflow of understanding the grace of God and of embracing the grace of God. God has saved me so that I can now obey out of love. And by the way, that's in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 30 itself, that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul. In other words, this was to be the expression of their faith. It wasn't the means by which they established their own salvation, even in the Old Testament. But the point is, is simple. You didn't have to go and get this law. And the law, just consider this for a moment, the law was God's gracious revelation of himself to his people. It was the way that God revealed his holy character. It was the way that God established confidence in his people it was the way, listen, that God had given for His people to relate to God, to be in and maintain a relationship with God. Even the sacrificial system was designed so that the people of God could continue to be in fellowship with God. It was never about perfection. I mean, it's built right into the law. When you sin, you sacrifice. And the whole point is this, that there was something there that was dealing with your sin, a substitute that made it possible for you to continue to exist in relationship with God. And you know what he's saying? None of you made this happen for yourself. You didn't devise the system. You didn't come up with the law. This was all handed to you. It was given to you. The law was given as grace. That's what Moses is saying here. You don't have to climb up to heaven to figure out how to have a relationship with me, God says. Or you don't have to crawl to the depths of the sea, to the abyss, to the place of the dead, in order to figure out how to be in a relationship with me. You don't have to do the impossible, is what he's saying. This is kind of a Hebrew idiom that says, like, you don't have to do what's impossible for you to do. God has done it all for you. Even though you didn't pursue me, God says, here you go. And that's the message of the gospel. We didn't seek God or pursue righteousness, and God simply said, here you go, here's my son. Paul adds in a little commentary here. Who will go get Christ from heaven? You see what I'm saying? Like, where's the, where's the provision for your righteousness? Where's the provision for your salvation? It's Jesus. Who's going to go to heaven and get Jesus? You can't. But guess what? Christ came down, the Word incarnate. Well, who will raise him up from the dead? Who's going to help figure out how to deal with the problem of sin and death? Who's going to make that happen? You can't. It was God's power that raised him up. 
You couldn't help Jesus come down and take on flesh and accomplish and fulfill all of the law, and you can't help Jesus conquer sin and death, and you can't raise him from the grave, but guess who did for you? God. And and this is the exact opposite of religion today. Right? You, you've heard the analogy, right, of, of all religions are essentially, you know, trying to get to the top of the mountain, trying to get up to God. That, there's, there's something to that analogy. That, that's exactly right. Every other religion is exactly the same. They're all trying to get up to the top of the ladder, to the top of the mountain. They're climbing each rung with their own righteousness. The problem is they will never reach the top. They're not even getting off the ground. Can't do it. And what's so fundamentally different about Christianity is that God came down the mountain for us. Everything that is necessary has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And as a result, it's accessible. He's provided it. Secondly, it's understandable because He's communicated it. And the main thing, remember, that He's arguing for here is a righteousness by faith. And you want to know what Moses was saying to the people of God all the way back in Deuteronomy, all the way back in Leviticus 18? The message that I have been proclaiming is not that you can actually be made righteous through the law, but that you can only be made righteous by faith. It's near you, he says. Oh, it's within your grasp. You see how he says that there? The word is near. It's in your mouth and in your heart. It's so close. It's so close to you. No one can say, well, nobody, nobody really knows how to get to God. Yes, we do. No one can plead ignorance. The revelation has been made clear in Jesus Christ, and, and this is, our hearts need to break, and we need to pray like the Apostle Paul for the salvation of many, because salvation is so near to so many people who have heard this word proclaimed, the word of faith. Some of you sitting here today, you, you have heard the word of faith proclaimed so many times to you, so many times. It is so near to you. It's like, it's like, it's like it's in your mouth. It's in your heart. It's right there. You know it. You get it. And yet you still haven't grabbed a hold of it and embraced the righteousness of God that is by grace through faith. Which is why, lastly, the gospel commands our conversion. Commands our conversion. It's so near your mouth and your heart. And you notice how he picks up on this this language in verses 9 through 13? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I just want you to know, this, is, this struck me in a fresh way again th- this morning as I was reviewing this, and I was praying over this, and I was praying for, for your hearts and for my hearts and for any of you here who, are, who aren't saved. I just want you to notice the beautiful simplicity of the gospel here. 
I mean, I mean how, how simple it is to be saved. It's remarkable. God's, God's make you, God's make you jump through a whole bunch of, think about all the other religions in the world, all the hoops you have to jump through, all the things you gotta do. I mean, I mean why did Jesus, why did Jesus say to people, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden because of all of the work of jumping through the hoops to try to make yourself righteous before God? And God simply says, look how simple it is. The word of faith is so near to you and you can have it. You can find rest for your soul. And it's not about what you can achieve, it's about what you must receive. The substance or content of saving faith is the central reality of salvation. And when we think about evangelism, when we think about preaching the gospel, we must be faithful in proclaiming the right gospel content. What must we proclaim? Notice what we must proclaim here. Two things. First, Christ is Lord. This is so vital to understand because th- this is language that's a little bit archaic. We don't use this anymore. You know, people, people don't know what this means, that Christ is Lord. They, they hear something like this and like, what, what is he, some kind of a British knight? No, we see, we are, we are proclaiming his deity and his sovereignty. This word Lord is used of God in the Old Testament over and over again. It's a claim to who Jesus is, his identity and his activity So when we say Jesus is Lord, you want to know what we're saying? We're saying, Jesus, you are the God of the universe, and you are the one who rules and reigns supreme. You are the God over heaven and earth. And when you say Jesus is Lord, you are saying, come and rule over me. You can't have, listen, there's some people who believe that you can just claim Jesus as your Savior as if you can just kind of pray the sinner's prayer, put your hand up during a service. I, I prayed the words. Listen, this, this isn't a formula to be regurgitated. This is a faith to be embraced. And, and, and I need to say this so clearly because some of you are maybe somewhat confused on this. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you will not have him as your Lord. You, you can't. The two things go hand in hand. Second, I want you to notice this, that the content here of the faith. You must believe that God raised him from the dead. Now, this is, when Paul says the resurrection, believe that God raised him from the dead, here's what you need to understand. Paul uses that word resurrection as a catch-all for the gospel. Because it is the defining feature of the gospel. You see, if Jesus remained dead, what does that mean for your faith? What does Paul say? It's in vain. Who cares? It's just another dead guy. But, but, if, but if Jesus rose from the grave, what does it mean? It means that he is God. It means that he is the only one who can conquer your greatest enemy of sin and death. It means that God has vindicated his son. He has put his stamp of approval on him and that he is the one to whom we must look for our salvation. So when Paul says this, he's encapsulating all of the gospel the, the righteous life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, it's all right there. You have to believe Jesus did what the Bible says he did for you, that he accomplished your salvation. He took your place. Some of you are like, well, well I believe. 
Be careful. You know what James says? Even the demons believe and shudder. So welcome to Team Demon. Even the demons believe. But, but here's, here's the thing. This isn't about just intellectual assent. You must possess a real belief, a trusting faith. You must lean on the gospel for everything. Do you see what he's saying here as he's expanding his thoughts from the, the passage in Deuteronomy? He's saying you don't have to do the impossible. You don't have to climb to heaven to be saved. The Lord of heaven came down to rescue you. You don't have to overcome sin and death. Jesus Christ conquered them for you. So what does the gospel command then? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That, that's what conversion is. It's a turning away from something and turning toward something else. It's a responding to the gospel by turning from sin and self-righteousness to Christ and His righteousness. And that's what God commands of you today. If you're not in Christ today, let me especially say this to you. This is what God calls you to do today. Stop trusting in your own righteousness. Repent of your sin of self-righteousness and turn and embrace by faith the gospel of Jesus Christ. Believe it in your heart to the depths of your soul that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that God came for you. He died. He rose. He's exalted to the right hand of the Father so that you could have a righteousness that you didn't earn but it's only a gift of His grace. And if you do, you know what the Bible says here? As He quotes again from Isaiah, you will not be put to shame. In the end, you will not be put to shame. You will not suffer the wrath of God. You know, you know here's the reality. And you've probably heard preachers do this before. I've done this before where you, know, you hear the illustration that one day you're going to stand before Jesus and can you imagine if you're standing before Jesus and, uh, and then Jesus said, okay, roll the footage. And your whole life was put on a screen before your eyes. Everything. I mean, everything you've ever done, the deepest, darkest moments of your life, everything you've ever thought, every sinful action, word, deed, thought, I mean, you name it, it's on the screen. You want to know what the reality is? Every single one of us would be absolutely ashamed, wouldn't we not? So ashamed. But the good news of the gospel is this. Listen, if you're in Christ today, do you realize something? There is never going to be a moment in your life where you hear the words, roll the footage. Never once will you have to look back at your life of sin and feel the shame and guilt of what you've done. And I don't care what you've done. You want to know why? Because at the cross, Jesus took your shame. At the cross, Jesus took your guilt. He took it all. He fulfilled the law on your behalf. And He took the penalty you deserve for your sin and mine. And as a result, we stand before God forgiven. You say, who, who can be saved? Who is it? Did, did, you, did you catch this? I mean, it's, it, it just rings in our ears. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord... 
Every person who looks to Jesus, not one person will be turned away. There's no, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. Every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. So stop trying to wash yourself up and present your own righteousness to God. And instead, let the gospel do its work in you. Receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Live in the grace of God. And now walk, listen, walk in obedience to Him, clothed in His righteousness. We will not be put to shame, church. And you know, one of the sweetest gifts of God's grace is that when you are saved, you you are not saved onto an island, you're saved into the church. 